It's my privilege to preach out of James 1, 22 through 25. Now, if you remember a few months ago, I preached from James 1, the previous passage, 19 through 21. And the passage we're going to look at today is a companion to that, really flows right out of it. 19 through 21 um, really talked about those necessary components that we need to understand to properly receive the Word of God, okay? So that was about receiving the Word. Here, in our passage that we're going to look at, um, James is concerned with the next step in that process. You receive the Word of God, but then you have to respond to the Word. And that's, that's what verses 22 through 25 are... are about. So let's read this passage and get it in our minds. Verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty... And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Around 2006, 2007, somewhere around there, I came across an article that was written in a 2005 issue of Scientific American. And if you're doing the math, it's 15 years ago about that I, I, uh, I came across this article. It was, um, it was that impactful for me, this, what the, the topic of this was, and it's stuck in my mind even now. Uh, the article was about a man named Lawrence Kim Peake. Lawrence Kim Peake. It might be familiar to you, probably not the name, uh, but, uh, but you'll know who I'm talking about uh, as we get going. But this article was titled, Inside the Mind of a Savant. And as I read more about um, Kim Peek, I came to find out he's actually known as a mega savant. It kind of sounds like a character out of a Marvel movie or something. He's a mega savant is what they call him. Peek was born in uh, 1951, Salt Lake City, Utah. He was born with a condition known as macrocephaly, which is an uh, abnormally in, uh, large head. And uh, with that, there was a host of other... Um, congenital neurological issues that, uh, that uh, gave him some great challenges in, in development even early on in his, in his life at age... And he couldn't even walk until age four, and even when he did uh, learn to walk, he walked with this kind of strange sideways gant to him. Uh, he couldn't button a shirt. Um, he, he had trouble with some of his fine motor skills. It was just part of the neurological uh, difficulties that he had been born with. But um, despite all of these developmental challenges, Kim evidenced from an early age some astounding intellectual abilities. According to his father, from the age of 16 months, Kim was demonstrating an ability to memorize things he had read, and he could recite books he had read with perfect recall. He'd read a book, memorize it, and then he would place it upside down on his bookshelf just to mark the ones he'd read. And it's a practice he started when he was a kid, and he would continue doing that throughout his whole life. And uh, Kim's ability to read and memorize was really astonishing. He could speed read a book in as little as an hour, memorizing its uh, contents nearly perfectly. So by the end of his life, he had read and memorized vast amounts of books. He could perfectly recall the contents of at least 12,000 volumes in a range of subjects from history to literature, geography, numbers, sports, music, dates, even the whole Bible. And one of the reasons Kim could intake so much information and memorize it was um, he had a, a, an interesting way of reading. He actually read both pages at the same time. So he would scan the left side, uh, the left page with his left eye while he was scanning the right page with the right eye. So he could basically intake um, twice as much information as uh, the normal person. But even then, it, you know, we, we read a page and we've got to read the words. He can just scan it and it and just came a part of him. And it allowed him to filter through the, the thickest of books, just the massive tomes that he could get through in about an hour. He was known in the Salt Lake City Library for... Uh, going, working through entire catalogs of books. Really an astounding man. And, and his, uh, 
abilities became well-known following the release of the 1988 film Rain Man, where Peak was the inspiration for Dustin Hoffman's character, uh, Raymond Babbitt. But um, one of the things that the article in Scientific American brought out was, was a, kind of the sad reality of, of, um, of Kim Peek's condition. Because uh, despite his remarkable intellectual abilities and the vast volumes of books that he had memorized and could instantly recall with accuracy, he had trouble understanding the significance of what he had memorized. Uh, it's not to say that he didn't understand anything. It's just that his ability to digest and then process and, and, un- and apply the principles at a philosophical level, that was what he struggled with. Uh, so he was filled with knowledge, um, but, uh, but he struggled to apply the knowledge in practical ways in everyday life. Okay? And uh, that was the issue that came to my mind as I was studying um, James 1, 22 through 25. Because even though the parallels are not all there one for one, Churches are nevertheless filled with individuals who are bursting with knowledge, who are listening a lot and intaking a lot of data, but, um, but maybe struggling to put that kind of knowledge into practice. I think uh, far too often we are much too willing to hear the word without actually doing the word. Week after week, we sit under preaching. We do this every week, Okay. We hear the word, we listen to sermons, we listen to podcasts in our off time when we're commuting, we attend Bible studies, we read, we accumulate Bible knowledge, theological knowledge. We might know the Bible inside and out, but, but does it actually translate into anything tangible in our lives? That's, that's the fundamental question. Does it actually translate into anything tangible? That's the issue that we are posed here in our text. James, if you remember, is writing to predominantly Jewish Christians in a very early time in Christianity, a time when the oral reading of Scripture was, uh, was a necessary and essential element of religious life, whether or not you were a Jew going into the synagogue or a Christian who was uh, assembling together in your own synagogue of sorts, the same word that James uses in chapter 2 to talk about their assemblies. You were coming under and predominantly hearing the Scripture read and taught. It was oral. And just like us, they struggled at times to not just hear the word, but then to obey the word, to put it into practice. But the reality is that, that, um, I mean, just as we learned from verses 19 through 21, uh, last time I preached, your relationship to the word is one of the things that sets you apart as a Christian, okay? I mean, just go back to verse 18 for a moment and see what, James talks about your relationship to the word as it says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth. That is childbirth language. This is your spiritual birth, your becoming alive again in Christ that he's talking about. And how did he do it? He said, brought you forth by the word of truth. So God used the word in your life to bring new life to you. So when Jesus says, You must be born again. Well, God born you again with the word. Okay? And then a couple of verses later in verse 21, that same word that he used to give you new life, he then also implanted in your heart. It calls it the implanted word in verse 21, which is able to save your soul. So it brings you to life in Christ. And from that point, that infancy in your life, Spiritual infancy, it is able to bring you all the way to your final, complete salvation when you meet the Lord face to face in glory. That is your relationship to the Word if you are a believer, okay? And so, if that's the case, okay, if that is your relationship, that what proves that out to be true in your life is how you then respond to the Word, what makes it genuine, what makes it real is when you put the word into practice. Authentic faith not only receives the word of God, but also obeys the word of God. And, and In other words, true, genuine, authentic, saving faith is a faith that hears God speaks and then God does what God requires. 
Okay? And so the question that we are posed with, how do we make sure that we're people who obey the word? What does it take to be a doer of the word? That's the question before us, and that's what James seeks to answer. And he answers it by giving us four truths that we need to know. Four truths that we need to know so that we can be doers of the word. This is the first truth. Doing the word is an identity. Doing the word is an identity. It is not a pastime. Doing the word is an identity. First thing that we have to understand is that Obeying the Word, doing the Word is not a pastime activity. It's not a hobby that we dabble in. It's, it's not an interest. It's not a fascination. It's not something that we do in our off time. It's an identity. It is so much a part of who you are that it is as, as essential to your identity as your own DNA is. Look at verse 22. James starts out. He says, but be doers of the word. I mean, James could have put this in a number of different ways. He could have just simply said, do the word. Do the word. He doesn't. He very carefully crafts this statement to not just put the emphasis on the action that he wants you to do, but on the, the person that he wants you to be. He wants you to be doers. That's an identity that you take on, that you embrace. Make it your identity. Make it a part of who you are. He's saying that the whole person, inside and out, needs to be wrapped up in the activity of doing the word. And just to reinforce that, that word be, it talks about continuous, ongoing action. It's never ending. To be a doer of the word is an identity that you own, and it is an identity that you never take off. It is a 24-7 identity that you own as who you are. I, uh, I grew up for a time in my life uh, in northern Virginia, um, right down the road from the site of uh, several major battles of the Civil War. And so I had an opportunity when I was a kid to go to a Civil War reenactment, which was uh, an incredible thing to watch as a 7- or an 8-year-old. And... Uh, these, these reenactments are astounding. The men and women who are, are, are participating in this, are, they're meticulous. They care about every single detail. From the weapons, the uniforms, the customs, the accents, the way they talk, they're trying to recreate what life would have been like in uh, mid-19th century America during the time of the war. And it's an educational experience for everybody. I mean, it's just communicating this holistic sense of what life would have been like to have lived and fought during the Civil War. And they're committed to it. They're, they're, they're committed to commemorating this time, the highs and the lows. And, and, uh, but here's the thing is, uh, that we sometimes forget. When we go to something like that, we see it all happen. We see these people that are in character. But guess what happens? So after it's all done, they strike the tents, they load up the gear, they get in their cars, they, go, they drive home, right? They take a shower, they eat a burger, they watch some TV, they go to bed, Okay. So when they're there, they're on, and, and they're, they're doing it, and it's, it's, it's who they are, and they're, they're playing the part, and then they go home, and, and they're regular Joe or Jane going to work, taking care of the family. It's not what it's like to be a doer of the word. This isn't a pastime. It's not a hobby. It's one thing to work on your car, to change your oil. It's a totally different thing to be a professional mechanic. That is your life. It's one thing to be uh, someone who has, for a time, maybe some days, some months, um, fought in an armed conflict. It's a completely different thing to be a professional soldier whose life is dedicated to warfare. Totally different thing. It's your identity. It's who you are. It's not just what you do, but it's who you are. And as Christians, born again by the word, implanted with that word in your heart, we must be doers of the word. So I'll help this sink in a little bit. Um, if you turn with me to, to 2 Corinthians 5 for a second. Paul uses the same kind of identity language to talk about the Corinthians. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 16. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. Identity language. If you are in Christ, you are not the person that you were before. You are a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That old person that you were is writhing and screaming on the cross. You are a new person now. That's identity language. And as a Christian, you're no longer that person. So the key to life as a Christian is to embrace who you are in Christ. And one of the things that you are in Christ is you must be a doer. And that brings us to a second truth, uh, uh, in tandem with that, and that's this, that doing the word, it is an identity, but it's also a necessity, not an option. And I say that just because to, to uh, take away any notion that um, you have a choice whether or not you take on this identity or not. You don't. There's no choice. It's not an option. It's a necessity. Look at verse 22 again. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. And so here we're introduced to a contrast. You have the doer of the word and then we're introduced to the alternative, the hearer only. And I I don't want us to get the impression that hearing the word is bad. I mean, it was the Apostle Paul who told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and to teaching. And you wouldn't tell your protege in the faith to do all that. This is oral things if hearing the word is bad. That's not the, that's not the issue. The problem is not being a hearer. It's being a hearer only. A hearer, that word in the Greek is a word that was used in classical Greek to talk about someone who attended the lectures and the teachings of various teachers and philosophers of the day, but they weren't necessarily a student or a disciple of that, that philosopher or that teacher. And so, you know, if you're thinking about it in, in a, a common day vernacular, it might have an educational equivalent today to uh, an auditor, someone who audits a class as somebody who sits in, but they're not accountable for any of the, the work. Now, I audited um, a class during my seminary time, and um, let me tell you, it was fantastic. It was great. I, mean, I, I showed up, I listened to lectures. Sometimes I didn't show up, <laughs> and uh, I didn't have to work hard. I didn't have to memorize things. I, I didn't have to write uh, papers. I didn't have to take an exam. There was no memory work. I mean, it, it, was, it was a luxury. But 10 years later, that class had little effect on me. The, the, the classes that had the most effect on me, 10 years out of seminary, the ones that I had to pour myself into to earn that grave because I was accountable for it. It was hard work, and I was memorizing paradigms of Hebrew. And there's certain men in this room who are... Who are um, you get twitches right now because of they're doing the same thing. But that's, that's, the, that's the accountability factor is, is the difference between being someone who hears an auditor and being a doer. When you're a doer of the word, you understand that as you hear it, God is going to hold you accountable to do it. It raises the seriousness of it. There is no auditing in the Christian life. And James makes that clear enough. If you look at James in verse 22, he makes that clear enough just by, by commanding this. He says, be doers. It's a command. It's an imperative. You don't have a choice. I'm reminded of what the Lord said in Luke 6, verse 46, when he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Lord, kurios, it means master. It means my master. Why do you call me your master? Implicit in that is that you're his servant, but you don't do what your master tells you to do. It's a contradiction. John put it even more bluntly. He said uh, in 1 John 2, 2 verse 3, he said, and By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Okay? But then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And what John does is introduces for us uh, something that James gets at 
in our text as well. And that's the the resulting net effect of being a hearer only. Look at, at verse 22 again. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. And what's the result of being a hearer only? Deceiving yourself. Deceiving yourselves. An auditor in Christ is a self-deceived person. That word deceived is used only here and in Colossians 2.4 in the New Testament. And it talks about being enticed into following after uh, fallacious reasoning, bad logic. So as you follow after it, you end up um, uh, coming to a false conclusion. And in Colossians, in, in Colossians 2.4, the deceiving ex, uh, influence was external. It was other people that were coming into the church and were espousing human philosophies and, and, uh, and, and tempting the, the Colossians to abandon, as Paul put it, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ and following after human thinking and human philosophy. That's not what James uh, is talking about. The threat in James is not external. It's here. We are the threat. We are the source of fallacious reasoning. We dangle that fallacy out in front of us like a lure, and then like a fish, we just go after it, and we hook ourselves with our own fallacy. And what's the fallacy? Fallacy is this, hearing is enough. Hearing is enough. That's the fallacy. That's an extremely dangerous position to hold. One author put it this way, it's sad to be deceived, most miserable to be self-deceived. Many still determine their godliness by the quality of their hearing instead of action and obedience. And that's very true in churches. To come under the word every week, and we think we're okay because we're hearing it all the time, but... um, but really the true test of where we're at spiritually is whether or not we're doing it, not whether or not we're hearing it. It's a problem if you're not hearing it. It's a worse problem if you're not doing it because that means you're self-deceived. Another author puts, said this. He said, Our churches are filled with spiritual sponges who soak up the information, sit, sour, and eventually stink. That's, that's the, the result of being a hearer only. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be the person who's bought into that lie that hearing is enough. It's not enough. There's no option. You can listen to all the sermons in the world and it won't do you any good if you hold to the deceiving notion that hearing is enough. We, we have to be doers, not just hearers. And that, that leads us to a, a third point. Doing the word is an identity. Doing the word is a necessity. But also, number three, doing the word is an effort, not a leisure. Doing the word is an effort, not a leisure. Look at verse 23. James, in verse 23, begins to paint for us a picture of the difference between a doer and a hearer. And and what he uses is he uses some imagery of a man standing at a window, or at at a mirror. This is verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And so this, this imagery is generic. This could be anyone. This could be you. This could be me. It could be the person sitting next to you. Pressure's on. And this person is staring intently, which is a good translation, actually, because it dispels the very common notion that the, the underlying sin of this individual, this man who's staring in the mirror, is that he just makes this very quick, haphazard glance and then walks away. And that's the problem. If he just would stare longer, this wouldn't be a problem. And it's not. That's not what the word means. This is a word that, uh, that Jesus used in Luke 12, verse 27, to, when he told his hearers to consider the lilies and, and how God has, has clothed them with a glory that's greater than the glory that he clothed Solomon. And so you don't, he's not asking them, he's not saying, well, just take a quick glance. He's saying, study them, because you think Solomon was glorious. You haven't seen anything glorious. Look at them. Look carefully. Think about this. It's the same word that Stephen, in his uh, speech in Acts 7, when he's talking about Moses coming across the burning bush, I mean, there's, here's a phenomenon for you, a supernatural phenomenon to come across a bush that is burning but not being consumed. And so he says, when saw, Moses saw it, 
Verse 31 of Acts 7, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. And I can guarantee you that Moses did not just go, oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, he stared at it. He's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. That's the idea behind this word. It's an intense, prolonged reflection on what's being observed, to directing one's whole mind in observation. I, I suppose a, an adequate uh, translation might be to study something visually the way that you would go into a fine art gallery and you would stare at a painting for a long time, studying it, thinking about its many textures and, and, uh, and, and expressiveness. That's what we're talking about. So this person is studying. He's studying his what is... Text says is his natural face, literally the face of his genesis, which is a Semitic way of just talking about what your natural complexion would look like as you look back at yourself in a mirror. And there's a good reason why he's studying his face is because he's looking into a mirror. And mirrors at that time were not clear, reflective uh, objects the way we're used to them here. That kind of glass mirror uh, wasn't really available until the end of the Roman times. Mirrors at this time the turn of the millennium were made of polished metal, usually polished copper or bronze. They produced a dim and, and kind of warped reflection. So you could gain a sense of the, the, the reflection uh, relatively well, but it wasn't easy and it wasn't quick. You had to take some time and look and see past the warped thing, see what was going on. You had to look intently at the mirror to, to see exactly what was going on, and, and that's what this individual is doing. So up to this point, the actions of this man are actually quite understandable, quite reasonable. He's staring into something, the same objects that, uh, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, you know, when you stare, at, you, it's like looking into a mirror dimly. Well, he's saying that language, talking about our knowledge of Christ in this life compared to face-to-face in the next life, because looking into a mirror at that time was hard to see. So it's understandable why he's, he's staring intently here. And so that's not the issue. The problem is what happens next. Look at verse 24. Where he looks at himself, same word, and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. So the issue here isn't that he's looking or how he's looking. The issue is that he goes away and forgets. That's the problem that dreams is driving at. And he makes that point clear because in the very next verse, look at verse 25. In the very next verse, he describes the doer is one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, remains, he stays there, not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. So what's the difference between them? One stays, the other goes away. The result is that the one who goes away forgets, he's no longer in front of the mirror. The one who stays, acts. The difference isn't in the quality of their looking. It's in what they do afterward. The hearer, verse 21, goes away and forgets. The doer perseveres, and so he acts. He doesn't go away. And the implication, if you go back to verse 24, the implication of this hearer only is that this person stares at himself in the mirror, and he's studying it. Maybe he's getting ready in the morning. Many of us did the same thing this morning. He's looking at his appearance. He's carefully observing things. He, he notes the frazzled hair. He notes this crusty sleep in the eyes. and Sees what needs to be dealt with. There's obvious problems to work on here before you make yourself presentable, and that's what he's doing. But then instead of actually dealing with them, instead of fixing the problems, he goes away and he doesn't fix anything that he sees. He goes away and then he's away from the mirror and he forgets what he even looks like. Problems are still there, but he does, he's not even aware of them anymore because he's not in front of the mirror and he never dealt with them in the first place. In contrast to the, verse, for, to the man of verse 25 who stares in the mirror. In this case, the mirror is, in both cases, is, is the word. He stares in that. 
He sees the problem, but rather than going away, he perseveres. He remains, he stays, he sees the problem, and he fixes it. He works on it. That's the difference. William Varner put it this way. He said each is equally serious in his gaze. Equally serious. It's what happens next that makes the difference. As for the man with the mirror, off he goes. His friends, however, when they meet him and see his face, could tell him that his devotion to the mirror is without any lasting value. We could read in more to this um, analogy than I think... um, James intended, but here's the overall point. This is what he's getting at. You don't look at a mirror, okay? You don't study a mirror intently. You don't look for all those problems and then not fix the problems, right? You don't look at a mirror and spend all that time just to go away without actually doing anything with what you saw. That's just, that's absurd. It's a waste of time. Why would you do that? That's the point. It's no less absurd to hear the word, but to not then do anything with it. That is just as absurd as looking at a mirror, seeing the problems, and then not doing anything and then walking away. The net result is the same. That's the point that he's driving at. A life that is lived under the word then has to be shaped by the word. It has to be shaped by the word if it's going to have any lasting value. And that is the key to all this. What's the key? What, what makes the difference here? And, and it's that word. It's persevering. It's remaining. The reason that you go away from the mirror, you want to know why? Is because dealing with those issues is hard work. It's hard. It takes effort. It's not leisure. It takes hard work to look, see the problems, and deal with the problems. Doing the word is an effort. It takes dedication to stay in front of that mirror deal with its defects fix the problems I think sometimes that we, for, we forget that um, when we became a Christian um, I feel like sometimes we think that we signed up for kind of a leisure activity it's like an 18 year old that um, is fresh out of, out of high school and says you know what would be really fun I want to join the military that sounds like a blast and then you know, he's slapped in the face by a cold, hard reality in, in basic training. Says, this is not a picnic. This is really hard work. I, sometimes we approach the Christian life that way, as if, as if sanctification was easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Sanctification is hard. Paul talked about that. 1 Corinthians 9, in the uh, beginning of verse 24, he, he talks about the arduous process of sanctification. He says, uh, verse 24, chapter 9, it says, do you, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Then he gets into how much work that these athletes that are in these kind of games do. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. So they're working so hard, busting their bodies to receive something that eventually withers, Okay? So if that's how hard they work for something that's perishable, how much harder should the believer work for something that's imperishable? That's the point he said. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't waste my time. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So... Paul is describing this hard and toiling labor of bringing your life under the direction of the word, of of disciplining yourself to do God's will and not your own will. That's hard work because you have to deny yourself. And that's one of the reasons why we don't deal with what we see in the mirrors because we we look at it, we see the problems, they're obvious, and then we say, I don't want to give up that. I love that. It's the best feature I have. Whereas it's really, it's how I like to spend my time. How, I don't want to give that up. So we walk away and we just forget and, and ignorance is bliss. That's one thing that happens. But you know, another reason why we don't deal with it is because 
It's hard work to deal with it. So we might want to change. We see the problems. We see the issues. But then when we actually have to go through with, with the, the, the process of sanctification, of, of killing sin in our lives and dealing with these things and denying ourselves, that's hard work. And eventually it fizzles out. One of the things that makes the blessed man in Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And when you get to verse 2 and it talks about um, why he's blessed, he delights in, in the law of the Lord, yes. But it's not just that. He meditates on it day and night. It's always in him. He lets it permeate into his soul, into his heart. He's thinking about it. He's thinking about how he can live out the word. That's, that's why you meditate on the word. That's why you go away from here and you don't just put the notes upon the bookshelf and then find them like 10 years later when you're spring cleaning. Say, so what are these? Oh, these are from 2020. I remember that year. I don't remember the sermon, but I remember the year. No, the, the blessed man who meditates, you meditate on it because you, you know that someday you're going to have to put this into practice. It may be tomorrow with your family. It may be uh, next year with the conflict that arises. You don't know. But you're ready. And that's the heart. That's the attitude. But it takes hard work to do that. It takes time. It takes effort. I've known people who have, um, in the middle of biblical counseling, you know, they're, they're there because they understand that they have issues that they have to work on in, in their personal life and, and they need help. And so they go see a biblical counselor and halfway through the process, they withdraw from that. And it's not because they don't want to change. They're there because they want to change. They withdraw because they realize how much work it takes to really change. Because biblical counselors give homework. <laughs> and you walk out of that. It's not just a therapy session. You walk out of this with homework to do. And you, you have to work. This homework gets personal. And some people, as much as they want to change, it's, it's too hard. It's just, I don't have enough time to do this. Changing is hard. Sanctification is hard. It takes effort. It's hard work. And you need to know that. That sanctification is no picnic. But, but... That brings us to a final point because it's one that rounds out what we would otherwise kind of be overwhelmed with, right? It's a little bit overwhelming to think about how hard this is. It almost feels like a burden and that's where I have to stop you. Final point is that doing the word is a joy, not a burden. Doing the word is a joy. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of liberty. Another way of translating that, the perfect law that sets you free. The perfect law that sets you free. This is a balm for anyone who is weary struggles at times to do the word. This is balm for us. It's, it's the key to it all because it really answers every question that you might be having about everything we've talked about so far. Why would anyone embrace doing the word as an identity? Why would you make it who you are? Why would you uh, commit yourself to uh, doing the word as a necessity? Why, why, why commit that? Why, why dedicate yourself to something that takes so much work? And the answer is, is because it's not a burden. It's joy. It's a joy to do it. And the reason it's a joy is because you've been set free to do it. Unbeliever, an unbeliever, obeying the word is not a joy. Obeying the word is an absolute burden and it is a weight that they feel on them every single day. And the reason it's a burden is because it calls them to do something that they do not want to do. An unbeliever does not want to obey the word So there's many of an unconverted person who sit in a, in a pew on a Sunday morning and, and they're, they're okay to play the part, but they're to, to, uh, to kind of play the part, but they don't want to live the part because their heart's not in it. Because you don't, you don't do things that you don't want to do, right? You do what you want to do. 
And an unbeliever doesn't want to do the work. But for the believer, obeying the word is not a burden. It's not. Not anymore. If you're a believer, there's something you have to understand about yourself. It's freedom. It's freedom because when you became a Christian, God took the law that was a burden, the thing that you didn't want to do, and he wrote it on your heart. No longer is it written on tablets of stone. This law, it's set before you. You must obey. Instead, now it's written on the heart. But this heart isn't the old heart you had anymore. That heart's been taken out and thrown away, and you've been given a new heart, according to Ezekiel 36. A new heart. And you have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in you. So now you have a heart that wants to obey the, the law's been written on this heart and you have the power of God himself in you to work it out. That's freedom. Listen to how Paul described this complete radical shift in your relationship to the law and to sin when you became a Christian. Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There is this incredible thing that happened. Whereas as an unbeliever, you were a slave. You were a slave to sin. And when you were a slave to sin, and sin is lawlessness. The sin does not want to obey the law. And so while you were a slave to sin, you had no desire for the law. You had no desire for the things of the Lord. You did not want to obey him. You were his enemy. You were at odds with him. But after you became a Christian, that slavery to sin was broken, and you became a slave to righteousness, so now for the first time ever, and this is mind-blowing, for the first time you are free to say no to sin and free to say yes to God and to do it from the heart. That's freedom. D. Edmund Hebert put it this way, and this is, just, I, this is profound what he says. He says, the believer is not free from the obligation to do the will of God as revealed in his word. And so I think that's something we have to understand, and we noted it earlier. This isn't an option. We're still under the obligation to obey the Lord, even as believers. But he says, love works in him to desire to do his Father's will. Love works. Then he says this, this is profound. He says, men are free when they want to do what they ought to do. When you want to obey, you're free to obey. It's the problem is, is when you don't want to obey. And anyone with kids understands that. <laughs> you have kids, you understand the difference between obeying from the heart and not, of having a sour attitude of doing what your parents ask you to do, but not doing from the heart or not. He says, this is the splendid paradox produced by a living faith in the gospel through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And, and look what happens next, okay? Verse 25, look what happens next. When you are a doer of the word, a doer who obeys because he wants to, not because he has to, it produces something in you. It says, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let that word sink in. Blessed. We've been hearing that a lot. It's the same word that Jesus uses on the Sermon on the Mount. It means happy. It means joyful. Doing the word produces joy. Obeying God brings happiness. And notice what it's connected to. Notice what the happiness is connected to. I mean, sure, there's, there's blessing to come in the, the, the kingdom, the, the millennial kingdom to come. But I, I really don't think that James is, is talking about this like it's, he's dangling some carrot. If you obey, there'll be good things in the future. That's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about something tangible in the here and now. He's saying, 
By obeying, you actually can be a happy person now in your obedience. Your obedience will make you happy. And that's such a release for us. That's where freedom is. is I can actually be happy in obeying. I don't have to kind of trudge along. No. Because you're staring into the law of liberty. The law that has set you free to obey out of the heart. The one who does the word is a happy person. And why? Well, we talked about it. It's because you're happy doing the things that you want to do. And it's only you're unhappy when you do the things that you know, you're obligated to do, but you don't want to do them. I mean, it's that simple. In Psalm uh, 112, uh, 119, verse 2, the psalmist puts it this way. He says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. All right? There's the obedience part. But the, the, the key is in, the, in the, the next line. Who seek after him with their whole heart. Happy is the person. Happy are those who keep his testimonies. But how are they happy? Why are they happy in their, in their obedience? It's because they're seeking after the Lord with their whole heart. That's how you can be happy keeping his testimonies. So that's one reason. It's, it's, your happiness comes from doing what you want to do. The other reason is, is because obedience brings happiness because it reinforces our own profession of faith. It, it, it gives us assurance. So we have assurance that what, our, what we claim to be true about ourselves, I'm a Christian, I love Christ. And then we get this assurance because we follow through on what Christ tells us and then we find joy in it and that joy reinforces, the circles back and reinforces and, and gives us confidence that what we claim to be true about ourselves is real. I really am a Christian because I want to do what God wills. That's freedom. That's what makes this not a burden, but a joy. We looked at this passage earlier, but this is John, 1 John 2, 3. It says, and here, here this was in, in light of this. He says, and by this we know, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know that you have come to know the Lord? You obey him. And that circles back. It's this circular effect of bringing you confidence in your, in your own profession of faith. So if you're struggling with whether or not your faith is real, maybe it's starting with, do I doer of the word? Maybe my, maybe my struggle in my heart with, my, with the genuineness of my faith is coming from the fact that I, I'm not practicing anything I'm hearing. It's a test for us. So as we think about this, what does it take to be a doer of the word? It, it takes understanding. It's an identity. It's who you are. It's not just what you do. It's who you are. And it, but it's also a necessity. There's no option here. There's no, uh, I would rather not. I'd rather just be on the sidelines. No, if you're a player, you're in the game. Or you're by definition not a player. And it's an effort. It's hard work. But it's a joy because it flows out of a freedom that we have to obey God from the heart. And, and so if you're hearing this, you're thinking and you're, you're getting convicted by this, um, and see this as an opportunity to ask yourself some, some important questions. It's good to have some self-evaluation. Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves, see whether or not you're in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, okay? But then he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. <clears throat> so your response, your response to the word, how you respond to hearing it, is a, genu- is a test of the genuineness of your faith. And when you've sat for a long time in a church, many of us have, you hear the word all the time, it's very, very easy to, um, to begin to convince yourself that everything's okay when it's not. Okay? So this is a great exercise for us to do some self-reflection, to ask ourselves, are we obeying the word? Are we really doing the word? Are we actually putting it into practice or have we gotten really good at hearing it without actually doing anything with it?
James, uh, later on in this epistle, warns us, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. That's, that's putting this into practice, right? If you know the right thing, but you fail to do it, it's sin. But here's, here's the, the, the hope in that. Is that. Yes, this is a weight. This is a warning for us. <clears throat> it may reveal you're not really who you think you are. Or it may reveal that I have... I've been slacking. I've, I've just been here. I've been an auditor. And, and I, I can't be an auditor anymore. So this is testing each one of us, me included. Um, but here's the reality where sin is found, where, gra- where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, right? There's, there's hope in the cross. There's forgiveness there. If you're a Christian and... You haven't been doing the word. There's, there's, there's grace there. Confess it. Turn, back, turn to, to Christ. Find jo- joy in that again, like you had when you were first a believer. And, and if you've never really had that joy, if it's, if it's always been kind of, kind of putting up a facade of playing the game but not really, um, <clears throat> not really who you are, then maybe this is a revealing moment for you that you're not who you think you are. And, uh, and maybe you need to come to Christ for the first time. You need to humble yourself and see how ugly your sin really is and, and see the freedom that is there in, in Christ. You can turn to him. It was Jesus who said, and I'll close with this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's the life of living under the weight of the burden of God's commands without having the heart to obey. It's, it's a burden. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.